Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Uh, look, in today's episode, I speak with Chris Massis, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Physiotherapy Association. And it was a really fantastic interview because Chris took the time to really dig deep and share with us his views on relationship building and the importance that plays as a leader. And also on the, he touches on the idea of purpose and how that can really start to shape who you are as a leader. So happy listening and one once again, feel free to jump on iTunes, Stitcher, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Well, welcome, Chris, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a sense of who you are and what you do. Can you just share a little bit about the position and where you work? Thank you, and, and thanks for having me. I'm really quite privileged to be on the podcast. Um, look, uh, I'm here at the Australian Physiotherapy Association, or, or the acronym's APA. Uh, I'm the Chief Executive Officer um, obviously a healthcare sector, uh, it's a peak body for registered physiotherapists in Australia. So what we do is all about um, being a professional development provider for physiotherapists. We're an optional membership-based organisation, uh, but what we have to do is, is advocate for the profession, provide education and knowledge for upcoming physiotherapists. Um, our turnover is around 18 million. Uh, we have roughly 80 employees, national footprint. Head office is in Melbourne here. But we certainly do um, go from coast to coast. We have members all over the country and, and particularly, and as, as we discuss further, um, we have an Asia pack sort of footprint as well. Uh, Brand Australia and Brand Physio is quite powerful in the Asian market, so we're trying to leverage that. Also, I, I sit on the board of Early Childhood Intervention Australia, the VicTAS branch, and also um, incoming chair of Allied Health Professions Australia. So a number of I guess leadership roles, but my paid role um, is the CEO of the APA. And just as a, a point of interest, is there an interesting fact that uh, the listeners might be interested to, to hear about uh, the APA? Yeah, look, I've been here for seven years and unbeknownst to me, uh, the organisation now is 112 years old, so it was formed in 1906. And, and physiotherapy, what we know it today, really was spawned out of the Great Wars, so it's a female-skewed profession, and a lot of physios, and back then it was probably more massage, really integral in the, the services, injured soldiers, a lot of nurses and, and physios were involved in World War One and World War Two, and particularly with the polio epidemic. So. Physio, today's physio was really born out of the contribution in the Great War. So I think that's a little bit of trivia for your listeners. So I'd like to take you back, all the way back to the, the beginning of your leadership journey. Uh, what was the first leadership role that you had? And can you give us a little bit of context around that? Yeah, I've given this a little bit of reflection, but arguably um, looking at my, my childhood really and, and my schooling years, I did a lot of extracurricular activity, particularly in sports. So reflecting back, I was captains of many like sporting teams and the like. I was college captain in my in year 12, and that's always um, for a 17-year-old boy, um, you think, oh, oh dear, I have to deliver a speech on speech night. That's the extent of leadership. 
Uh, but professionally, uh, I did get some leadership roles in the early 2000s, mainly around uh, managing a, a small business development team. And that was that was probably my first foray into professional leadership, if you like, in, in employment. Although I've had, I guess, corresponding leadership roles in extracurricular activity, I, I usually see that as a, as a professional a professional one. Okay. And what were some of the mistakes you made in that, that first leadership role? Oh, look, I think um, you always look back and, and you don't tend to delegate in your first leadership role. You tend to want to be a peer or a colleague or a friend and, and a doer rather than a leader. So uh, I think any advice to an aspiring leader is around uh, taking the leadership role as just that, being the leader not to not to not do the doing, but I think you don't tend to delegate early on in those days. And I think rather than being the, the teacher or the, the visionary in that role, you're almost uh, the doer with that title. So on reflection, you do want to get better and learn. But if I was to give anyone aspiring leader some advice, would it be around take on that responsibility and don't be scared to delegate? Yeah. And any uh, think that anything that you think you did really well in that role? Yeah, probably naturally my, my skills are being a, a relationship-based person. So I think the people management, whilst everyone claims to be a good people manager, in reality not many people are. And I think uh, having a, a relationship-based approach really helped me with the people management responsibility. I think that's the hardest thing in leadership, but I, I really think... Um, you have to have a, a relentless effort to get better at that. No one ever is great at that. But I think people management and the responsibility that comes with that was probably one of my more successful measures. And what were some of your biggest learnings from the role? I think, uh, you know, for me it was around um, the acceptance of responsibility. Quite often you're so hell-bent on chasing a title or a role or a position that you don't associate the re responsibility that goes with that. And I think knowing that responsibility prior to, to getting into that role is is a real discipline and, a, and would help someone coming into a role. I think leadership can be lonely, so getting support around you and not assuming you know everything in your first leadership role. I think it's really important to keep surrounding yourself with different people, mentors, peers, to get the best out of you. The best advice I ever got was be your own leader, no, don't try and replicate someone else's leadership. Um, and quite often I was of the view that I, I can't do it because I'm not like that person. So I think they're probably some of the learnings for me. And I'm always curious if people make a conscious decision that leadership's for them. Yeah. Uh, did you make that decision? Look, I've probably been a reluctant leader. Never really sat comfortable with me the the term leader or leadership or manager or any title. The old uh, saying, uh, "Leaders born or made." I probably lean towards a made. You, you you are formed, and your formative years and your people you surround surround yourself with and your environment really brings out the best in you. So, yeah, I I think. I never was comfortable with the role, but as I get older and in different leadership roles, I've become less uncomfortable, if that makes sense. And what impacts do you think you had on the people that reported to you during that time? I think one of the hallmarks for me is around maintaining professional relationships. So I always have the mantra of, of people leading better. And so if they lead better to a better job or a better position or a better employer, a better opportunity, I think the leader 
if the leader's created that environment or fostered that relationship and they leave a better person, um, both professionally or personally or emotionally, that is something that is a hallmark of a good leader. So it's not necessarily the tangible things around KPIs in the business or success or, or, um, or dollars or whatever your measures are. I think it's around how you can then move on other people in different areas and stay connected, stay in touch. So I think that's a real hallmark of a leader, seeing someone prosper in the future. And how long were you in that role? That role was around two and a half years, so it sort of gave me a really good chunk to enter it blind, add my own contribution or shaping it, and then passing it on and leaving it to someone else. Okay, so you've had your first taste of leadership. What leadership move did you make and why? Yeah, this one was an internal, it was an internal promotion, uh, and that was around um, a responsibility of, of a whole state. So this was a Victorian director type role. And that was, uh, again, you never think you're ready for a step up or a significantly larger type role. It was opportunistic. I was, I guess, looking back groomed for it as well. So that gave me a great comfort that I was, someone saw something in me and going in green to take on the role. And did you think the move turned out to be the right one for you? Look, Yes, um, you're, never, you're never too sure and you always have that self-doubt, but it has given me a springboard into other opportunities in other um, leadership roles, both professionally or pro bono and, and voluntary work because of what that role or that title gave me and, and the gravitas externally. So I think, again, I was nervous and didn't want to, I didn't think I could be the person who was previously in the role, but I was my own person. And I think that's a reflection that I look back on and the advice I'd love to give to people in, in either aspiring or current leadership roles. Um, do you think it was easy for you to move into that role because you had some prior leadership experience? Uh, yes, but not necessarily the, uh, the working leadership experience. I think leadership experience, as I said earlier, around your external environment. So it might be in your family, in your social clubs, in your sporting environment. It might be in your volunteer work. I think you learn uh, leadership and, and, and mobilising people in a whole range of settings, not just in the in the employment setting. And I think people are so narrow-minded that uh, you know leadership is in the workplace. Uh, leadership is all around us, particularly in, in this gig economy. It's it's everywhere. So sure, it did help, but I think my other experiences helped shape me to get into that role as well. And were there any significant achievements which you think you were able to uh, achieve during that time? Uh, look, I think. We, we were quite successful as a business from a KPI point of view, but for me, uh, again, it goes back to the people. Um, you know, I'm still in touch with that core group of people and the team that I led today, and that is probably more important to me than the, the success of the business or the KPIs at the time. We went through a lot of change, both organisationally. We had personal tragedies, we had personal successes, but I think what we did together was really powerful. And, um, you know, to this day, there's some great stories and that we all relive. And I think, again, it comes back to that relationship-based approach from a leadership point of view. We all had a job to do. We all worked very hard when we needed to. We all celebrated hard when we could. But I think looking back at that time, it was a really really big time in my professional life in building who I am today because it taught me many things about um, how people respond and how, how to get the best out of people. 
So you mentioned there, I'd just like to explore something a bit further there. You mentioned about the importance of the relationship leadership and, and building those relationships. Were you conscious of that at the time, that that's an approach you wanted to take, or is that something that you've reflected on and now realised that's what you were doing and that's what you continue to do now? It's a great question. I, I think it's the latter. It was more a reflection piece. As you get older, you tend to reflect more on your on your own style. You get your 360 feedback and what your strengths are and what your opportunities for improvement are. And a lot of that is around, uh, I guess, my natural strengths is, is the... Um, the ability to relate to people of different generations, so not having a vanilla style that might rub or or, uh, or be at odds with the way someone would thrive or respond, particularly in this this workforce now where there's five generations in the workforce. Um, I think we're up to millennials or Zs or something. So for me, it's that adaptation and really that situational leadership where you need it. And so... Again, it's not a conscious effort that I try and do that. It was probably innate. But looking back, it's what got people to go above and beyond for me when needed. And I think without having to be that command control style. And why did you decide to leave that particular role? Well, again, it was another opportunity. It was, again, an offer that was given to me that it was the current role I'm in that I thought I wasn't ready for. So you never think you're ready. Untried CEO, young at the time, coming into an organisation that needed some transformation. You ask the question, do you really want me? Am I the right person for this? But as I said earlier, someone sees something in you or identifies skill or talent or, or your vision. And sometimes you need to have that self-belief and, and the ability to, if I'm not ready, will I ever be ready? But if I'm not, let's let's learn as you go. And I think um, sometimes people are waiting to be perfect in order to you know throw themselves into leadership. And quite often I would say, and, and when I mentor, you know, whether it's young women or, or, or emerging managers is 80% or 90% is okay. You can learn quite often on the role. And when they approached you for the role and you were sort of in your own mind thinking, am I ready for this? Did you express that to them? Did you... I did. I was quite brutally honest and said, are you sure you're comfortable with this appointment? And there were other complexities at the time about the outgoing CEO and the like, but I think that actually gave them greater comfort by that, that self-awareness and that emotional intelligence to say, look, you're not perfect. There are some characteristics that we want to embrace and that we love, but you don't have everything. So what are the, how do we bridge that gap, um, whether it be in the first year or two, and mainly around subject matter expertise, but all the other stuff you can bring to the table. So that, that probably validated their preference or their choice. And did you or they put any sort of deliberate support structures around you during those early years in, in the role? Yeah, definitely. And I was very lucky those decision makers or the board at the time were keen to invest in, in a mentoring structure, formal, and also a professional development structure that would give me a, a learning plan and a development plan on, on the job, uh, which was very, um, you know, sometimes rare in an organisation. But I think having that vision and support from the, the leadership of the organisation really helped me in those formative years. So you're seven years into your, your current role. 
Are you able to give the, the listeners any, any further context about some of your responsibilities, any performance metrics, expectations, things like that? Yeah, look, uh, as a CEO, you report into a board, board of directors. Our board is a board of eight, six physiotherapists, two independents or, or professional directors. I have a close relationship with the chair, so we're, although we're technically a not-for-profit membership-based organisation, we are a company limited by guarantee, so we do have a number of ASIC responsibilities, lodging financial statements and the like, company secretary duties. But my day-to-day is, is reporting into the chair, the board, develop the strategy. My role is to execute and, and to report into how we're tracking against the strategic plan. I have five direct reports and executive team that, that I delegate to and each have a portfolio. And, and so I have a fortnightly one-on-one with each GM. I try not to be a micromanager. I, I really empower them to run their whole divisions. For me, I prefer to work on the business and in the business. So really looking at the, the next thing, the future focus um, and the opportunities rather than the, the detailed operations. But sometimes you have to get your hands dirty and, and, and actually do the operations as well. So I'm not saying it's an ivory tower role or, or that you do all the fun stuff. You really have to be on top of your game and ultimately I'm accountable for it all. So if something goes amiss, whether it's a, a spelling mistake on a website or a strategic plan, it all it all falls on me. And so some of the reflections, I didn't realise it can be a very, very lonely role. And when you want to confer Sometimes you can't confer with your team and you need to have an external network that you bounce things off, whether they're professional or or even just social networks to really just get some validation, be a sounding board and just make sure you're you're on the right track and quite often you are, quite often you're not and that's okay. I think it's just having the ability to to vocalise to a trusted advisor. I'm always interested if when leaders talk to me about what they think they're good at and what they think they're not so good at. Where would you say your strengths and weaknesses are? I think um, I'm a future-focused person, so I don't tend to look at the pain now, although that's hard not to avoid <laughs> it, but I, I love looking at what could be and what are the opportunities and not to discount any any blue sky or, or greenfield opportunity. And again, surrounding myself with good people, uh, I, I really like, um, I really embrace diversity. So. You don't have to be a cookie cutter. You don't ever have to have had experience in what you're doing if you can bring to the table some characteristics or, or skills that we need to actually take us to the next level. I'd take a punt on that. So I always believe behaviour, I would always reward behaviour before KPI. So if someone's flying from a KPI point of view but is a disruptive person or, or, or really toxic behaviour, you wouldn't reward that person. But if someone's just missed out on measures but really lives up to your behaviour, you'd reward that person. So so for me, it's probably the identification of talent and, and people and, and really um, nurturing that talent to, to help you deliver a, a shared cause. And that future focus are probably the two things. In terms of weaknesses, I think my... 360 feedback or the feedback at times I can be quite demanding and and don't necessarily smell the roses when when things are going well quite often it's so focused on the next thing that we don't reflect and take stock and I need to be better at that Um, and then the other one is probably the commercial application in a membership um, health environment always being stretched and challenged in in the new economy around how do we how do we monetize the the organization 
not necessarily getting more membership money, but non-membership revenue. And what are the opportunities in this environment? So I think you look Asia, as we said, digital, um, looking to the consumer of, of physio services. So all those new revenue streams, I think we're getting better at it. But personally, um, it's something I need to get better at. So I'd like to just now explore some of your more general views on leadership, because uh, I think it's always good to get people's insights. So what do you think the, the biggest myth around leadership is that you've heard or come across? Yeah, I touched on earlier, is it born or, or made? And I know that there's a 50-50 view um, around this. The military would say you're definitely made. Others would say you're born. I think that one of the myths about leadership is you have to be uh, a firm or a loud leader with presence and, and almost being that overt, powerful leader. But leadership comes in so many forms and I think cut across so many people and so many levels, particularly within the workplace. So I think one of the myths is around leadership is with a title. And, I, you know, anyone can be a leader in a workplace or in a setting, in a club, in a team environment. As we're recording this, there's a lot going on with the Australian cricket team. And so, you know, leadership doesn't necessarily have to come with a title. So I would, again, as a, as a lesson or a takeout for your listeners, you can be a leader at any time you want to be. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be with a, a line, a reporting line or a title or a, a responsibility. I think a demonstration of what you think is right in the different setting you were in can be done whether you have that title or not. Uh, you mentioned before that you, you, when you think one of your strengths is that you're future focused. Is that how you would describe yourself as a leader or is there anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, there's all the cliches, collaborative and cooperative and all those sort of things. But I would say, you know, if I was to contextualise it, someone who provides a clarity and vision. So I could be a leader who, who would be a future focus, but could also articulate a, a roadmap or a vision. And that's how I, when people ask, you know, what's your leadership style, I, I tend to gravitate to those descriptive words. And what are some of those traits you think you demonstrate as you're, as you're articulating that roadmap? Yeah. Look, I am um, always a big believer in being open and transparent. So I think if you're authentic and you, you speak genuine and you speak from the heart on what you believe is the best for the organisation or for the, the team or the setting, whatever your environment, that is, uh, that is a trait for me that would get the best... The best buy-in, I think people see, they may not agree with the direction, the strategy, but if they see you're genuine and you're authentic and passionate about that, then quite often you would get that energy back. And, and I think if, if you're open and honest rather than a cryptive and stand behind corporate jargon, I, I think you get a greater, a greater mobilisation that way. So one of the things that uh, we do in Synergen is we're always training people on different methodologies and, and models and frameworks. And I'm always curious when I talk to leaders, are there any models, frameworks, tools which they actually use mm. in their day-to-day -day work? So is there anything which has stood out for you? Look, there's thousands of them, as you guys know. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big consumer of information, um, particularly in this day and age. You can, you can do anything on... Google, podcasts, reading books. Simplicity is one for me, and I've always used this in my management meetings around what do we stop, start, and keep? Uh, what are we going to stop doing? Whether it be behaviours or outputs, what are we going to start doing and, and keep doing? 
we're really good at starting and keeping. We're not that good at stopping. And it's probably a common thing, prioritisation, all those sort of things. But I think if you can have that regular discipline, okay, guys, let's just take stock. What are we going to stop doing and start doing and keep doing? Um, it's not overly scientific, but it can give you a lens to look through, whether it's a behaviour issue, an output issue, or a work plan issue. You can always use those three words to just question yourself. And what would you say your biggest leadership challenge is right now? It's a good question. I think it really takes a bold person to look at themselves and, and talk about leadership fatigue. The constituents you're leading, are they tired of you? And it's really hard because you want to go out on top. You don't want to be the annoying person who outstays their welcome. So for me, it's that renewal piece and how do you keep the energy up, renew your style or your need so your stakeholders continue to believe in what you're trying to do. For me, as you said earlier, it's coming up to seven years. You know, the seven year itch, is that something that you say, okay, do I need to reinvent, renew or, or pass on the baton to someone else? I think it's really important that the organisation will always be here. I'm just a custodian at the moment and my role is to leave it in a better place than what I found it and pass on the baton. So that's, that's a, an honest conversation you have with yourself, with the board and the chair. So that's probably my biggest challenge at the moment. You got any plans on how you're going to uh, renew and get keep the team? Look, one of the opportunistic things for me is a new strategic plan this year. So that gives me a chance to really shape what we're doing both strategically and externally, but also it gives me a, a tool internally to get a refresh from the, the staff and the members and the volunteers. So, yeah, utilising that asset to avoid that fatigue. Uh, I think it's in, it might be interesting to share with the listeners just a little bit more about that. Is that over? What sort of time frame is that strategic plan over? Historically, we've had three-year strategic plans, but what we decided, we did a, a six-month consultation process. The external environment, in our, in our sector at least, in health, um, is changing so rapidly. We've moved to a rolling strategy, so we still have our key strategic objectives. We do have our KPIs and our pillars and capability, all those sort of things that you'd see in a typical strategy. But we've gone away from a, a time frame or a time cycle. It's just a rolling strategy with regular reviews. And what that allows us is to be responsive to, to the changing environment. It's rapidly uh, moving. We want it to be a more agile organisation rather than being very concrete in our approach. So the roadmap's still there, but if we need to go down a few rabbit holes as we go along the journey or if an opportunity comes up that is in contrast with the strategy, we have the ability to, to divert. And I think that's that's mature. We're still learning how to do that, but it's something that's new. And, and so typically we've had three years, but we're thinking that might be even too long in this day and age, so a rolling strategy at the moment. And so how do you define your success as a leader? Is it through the execution of the strategy or are there other things that you look at? I think so. Uh, look, you'll always have your KPIs and your success measures, which are the commercial measures. But uh, for me, it's around other things that you need to, to determine and looking at your stakeholders and, and the feedback and the satisfaction you get from stakeholders. And the other thing is around engagement. What engagement do you have both at a, in our case, a staff engagement, a membership engagement? If we're getting engagement at the right levels, the, the measures will come. So I think if you look after the backyard, 
the KPIs will spit out at the end. I think if you're so focused on the end result, you tend to overlook the important things in the middle. So for me, it's around getting your engagement right and your, your processes right and your communication from that, the success will come. You mentioned before that you've got five direct reports. How do you go about building their leadership capability? Because they're in GM roles. Yeah. Uh, look, I am a big believer in formal professional development, but also the opportunity to build your own network. So we're big on providing professional development internally each year. So I make sure they all go on the company director's course. Most of them have done that now. Any other postgrad or, or short courses that they need for their particular disciplines or their lines, and then encourage them to seek out their own external mentors. I really believe expanding your peer group away from your professional environment is gives you another lens to actually be a better GM and then working with them in our in our working progress meetings around what they need to be doing and where can I help them what can I how can I unlock any barriers for them to help them deliver so it's a two-way conversation you know they challenge me I challenge them and I think having that respect is is really powerful in in making them better for when they eventually move on. My board always say to me that I need to, if I ever move on, to have a successor or, or at least an option for an internal successor, and that's the any good leader should have a number of potential successors underneath them just to, to give the option on the decision for the decision maker. And you mentioned uh, about mentoring. It's something that I'm, I'm a big believer in. So do you have... A professional mentor, are you a mentor? What's your experience been with mentoring? Yeah, both. So I've had, um, I've got a number of unofficial mentors that I still stay in touch with over the, the journey on different workplaces and, and different individuals with different skills. I do also have a, a formal mentor, which is around that commerciality piece that I spoke about. So really looking at my uh, weaknesses and opportunities to grow as a as a, an executive and that's been great and the, the benefit of that is that it's driven by you as the mentee they're there to guide and ask more questions they're not there to provide the solution so I, I really believe in that relationship and and also as a as a mentor uh, I mentor some young physiotherapy students who are keen to to get into the career in into their career and also some female executives who are really challenged in a, a male skewed sector that they work in and trying to get cut through there so uh, it's quite interesting because you never feel like you're a mentor or you can add value and when someone asks you it's very flattering but again it's similar to the leadership advice people see something in you that they want to get out of you to help them so again be yourself offer your examples or your your life story or your cases that they can really crystallize and take away for themselves okay. this is something there i want to explore because I've, I've come across this linkedin feed where there's all these studies going out there that senior male executives are afraid to mentor women right now. And you've mentioned a couple of times that you've got uh, a very clear focus on that. Was that a conscious decision that you made? Is there anything behind that? Yeah, the environment we're in, as you know, um, is a changing a changing of the guard so to speak so for me if I if a little contribution to society or, or to the community is if I can make someone into a position of influence where they'd have an impact in the future then I've done my little bit so 
although it wasn't deliberate, it's just gravitated to it and fallen in my lap. So I haven't balked at it. I've actually thrived in that. And it just so happens that there's probably more skewed, more skewed female up-and-coming people or executives want to, want to get an understanding of how I do what I do. And it probably just comes naturally because of physiotherapy being a female-skewed profession. My style has had to shape in a way that is responsive to that sector. So it's a great question, but I think anyone, particularly male executives, can contribute to actually bring someone up and along from an equality point of view. It's almost a responsibility. And I'm always curious how senior leaders view the idea of networking. Traditionally, it's viewed as something salespeople do. What do you think about networking and how do you go about it? Yeah, well, we're, we're recording this in Melbourne, which is a, um, you know, a, a coffee capital. Uh, and never say no to a coffee because you just never know. Many of the, the jobs or the opportunities I've been given has been a result of network. So very rarely have I either had to apply for an advertised role or a, be part of a group that's advertised. So really encourage it. I know it can be a dirty word and not everyone likes it. So we're, we're all a little bit socially awkward now. Not many people can speak with you know social media. It's hard to communicate. But really encourage people to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I know that sounds an oxymoron, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. But always, always meet someone new if you can and never say no to it, even if it's someone's trying to sell you something. Sometimes you get a little gold nugget or a connection that actually will help you, if not immediately, the second or third job or in the future. So I'm a big believer in, although some people really formalise their networking, I'd like to keep it as informal as possible. And it might be um, just a discipline of meeting someone new once a week or once a month. If you just have that own KPI, who have I met new this month? and keep your own dossier, I think that's a a good way to actually um, expand your own professional and social network. So we're heading into one of your strength areas, the future. What does the future hold for you? Yeah, again, I I feel my contribution now um, in my career is is to work for purpose-based organisations, really want to make an impact in society. So hence, a couple of my director roles, although they're pro bono, I feel they're really, really important in making a difference. There's no doubt that in the health sector, there's a growing demand for health and well-being in society. You're seeing kids now who are inactive, their diets are terrible, diabetes epidemic, obesity. This generation will probably, um, their parents will outlive them. So I think we're at a really critical point and juncture in society. So. If I can make a difference in, in arming a workforce or a, or a policy or some decisions around government to actually eradicate that, I'd like to contribute to that in the future. And how do you continue your development as a leader? One of the things I'm finding is that during these interviews, people are, are very much learning on the continuing to look at their experiences as a way of developing. I'm wondering, is, is that the same for you or is there anything else that you're doing? Yeah, you're right. Uh, experiential learning is, is so powerful. I know we, we put a lot of emphasis on the, um, you know, the letters after your name and all the quals on a CV. That's important. Um, experiential learning is, is just as important for me. And I think self-learning, you know, we've forgotten to read, read classic books and literature. I think the, the ability of and the access that we have now available on um, online, there's no excuse for actually not engaging in, in content and activity and 
best practice in a whole range of things and they translate in many many areas so I think uh, it, it's incumbent on yourself to do the formal things also the informal things as well um, but also yourself take responsibility for yourself and actually self-learning is just as important as the formal learning and the um, and, and the academic learning and also the uh, the informal experiential learning. And you mentioned before in terms of you know, reviewing the, the length of your strategy piece you mentioned that uh, change is happening very quickly. So what challenge do you think your industry sector is going to be faced with in the next you know, one to two to three years? Yeah, we all hear about disruption and whether it's uh, in parentheses digital disruption. If you look at health, healthcare, uh, you know, you can see the big players are coming in. So your Apple's, Microsoft, Google's, Amazon's are all wanting to play in health. It's probably one of the last sectors that hasn't been disrupted. You think of real estate, you think of transport, you think of a whole range of sectors. So disruption is coming whether we like it or not. Physiotherapy tends to be a conservative profession and aren't really innovative in their approach to whether it be healthcare, models of care or engaging with the consumer. So I think how do we uh, mobilise a, a profession to be consumer focused, digital ready and responsive to the, um, to the, the health needs of the country and the world? They're big, big challenges. And I think the generation coming through are really great thinkers. It's just how you get that permeating through a whole profession. And the allied health profession as a general, as chair of that group, you know, that's a very, very large workforce that will be in high demand in the future as we get away from a medical central model to more of a, a matrix health structure. And how well prepared do you think you and your team are to, yeah. to meet that whole challenge? We are trying to be prepared. Are we fully prepared? Of course not. I think we've identified the issue. We, we think we know what are the pain points and we're doing our best to, to arm ourselves with the information and the, the capability that we need. But we've got so much more work to do. And I think that's what actually wakes me up in the morning and, and gets me to work. I think that challenge is so large but so exciting because of the potential good impact it can have in the future. So that's what really uh, gives me purpose and, and wanting to contribute and, and, and be part of that journey. Geographically, where do you think that change is being driven from? I mean, is Australia leading the way in terms of allied health? Are we mm -hmm. sort of following suit of somewhere else? Where do you think we fit? Yeah, I think Australia punches above its weight in, in research. Uh, some great research institutes are here, some great discoveries in Australia. Obviously, the US is a different health system and we, you know, arguably we have the best, best health system in the world. If you wanted to get sick in the world, you best get sick in Australia or in an Australian health system or hospital. If you do it in Indonesia or in Europe or you know somewhere else or in America, if you don't have your credit card, you're, you're in trouble. So I think bashing the Australian health system is not necessarily, as some people do, not necessarily a good thing. It can be better. So I think Australia punches above its weight in, in the world in terms of healthcare, research and innovation. I just think the way our society is in terms of the, the consumption we have now, not only in, in food but in um, clothing, in, in everything, it's just a, a consuming society and as a result our lifestyle and our lifestyle factors are contributing to poor health and health outcomes. So I think it's a changing of the guard. I think there'll be a tipping point but we're at a point now in our, in our history where we need to do something and, and have an intervention to try and get us back into equilibrium I think. And are there any leaders that you look up to or that inspire you? 
Yeah, I was I was thinking about this earlier today. I think uh, Australian politics is a bit disappointing at the moment. Probably for the last decade, when you think about it, we've really lacked that, I guess, inspiring leader. I think you look at the the innovators in the world, your typical Musk Branson model, who, although you know they are showmen, I think what what it does prove is you can you can really roll the dice at anything. Your only limitation is your imagination. So I really admire people that that really ignore the naysayers and actually have a go. One of the criticisms of Australian culture is that tall poppy. I think we, we don't celebrate our our triers. If they fail, uh, we tend to throw stones. So yeah, I probably, you know, I know they're cliche, but your Branson Musk's sort of inspirational. And then the classics around Mandela and, and Martin Luther King from a human rights point of view in, in their point in time are probably the, the ones that come to my mind. If people are interested in finding out more about you and about APA, where should they go and what should they look for? Yeah, look, I think the best place is our website, physiotherapy.asn.au. That's That's got what we do on there and also links to, to me and, and emails and contacts if, if anyone wants to follow up. Okay, and any last words on leadership? My, my probably only bit of advice is um, leadership is about making others better so if you can set out to be a leader that makes someone else prosper in the future then you've done your job now that's an easy summation but if you can create that environment um, those processes structures and systems and the discipline to do that i think that's probably you know the majority of being a good leader the rest is is a whole you know you can fill it in whatever you like but for me it's around making people better well, thank you so much, Chris, for, for being part of the podcast. Really appreciate it. All the best. No worries. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.